Now, we're, we are very honored to have Senator Daryl Steinberg as our commencement speaker today. He earned his law degree from UC Davis School of Law. He's a member of the California State Senate and was elected last August to be President Pro Tem. Senator Steinberg previously served in the State Assembly, where he was chair of the Budget Committee and the Select Committee on High Priority Schools. In the Assembly, Senator Steinberg was named Rookie of the Year and given awards for Most Intelligence, Most Integrity, and Best Problem Solver. He sounds like a King Hall trained lawyer to me. Senator Steinberg previously served on the Sacramento City Council and before that was an attorney for the California State Employee Association. Please join me in welcoming a true public servant and proud King Hall alum, Senator Daryl Steinberg. Thank you very much, Dean Johnson, for that very nice introduction, Chancellor Vanderhoof, faculty, law school staff, parents, friends, family, and most important, the graduating class of 2009. In my job, I get many speaking invitations and many of them come and go and I don't remember them a week later. I guarantee you that this is not one of those occasions. It is a great honor to be back here 25 years after I graduated from King Hall to be your commencement speaker. Truth is, I only came here actually in the hope and in fact the expectation that you would grant me an honorary degree from Arizona State University. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen it. You know, I'm in politics, the president of the California State Senate, and we get blamed for quite a bit in politics. In fact, this past Tuesday, I was, on the, I was a guest on the nationally televised CNN Lou Dobbs program to talk about the woes of California. And right before the live interview, Mr. Dobbs' reporter gave a five-minute rundown of all of California's troubles, all of our woes here in 2009. And he went through the usual litany, the budget, water, the dysfunctional system of governance, corrections, public safety, we went through the whole thing. And then he added, and this is the state where Ms. California may be stripped of her title. <laughs> and then he concluded by saying, and this is the state where Manny Ramirez was suspended 50 games for steroid use. So. Now that I have the mic, on behalf of the entire state legislature, I want to apologize for Manny Ramirez's 50-game suspension. We'll, we'll take it all on. Members of the graduating class, humor uh, is in fact very, very important, uh, in good times and in bad. But clearly, for all of you, this is an uncertain and unsettled time and a certain and unsettled economy that you are going into. 
old assumptions and the old paradigms no longer apply. But each of you needs to ask yourself an important question. Would I rather be going out into these uncharted waters or would I rather just be starting law school, learning about the rule against perpetuities? I'm going to talk to my joke writer about that one. Okay. Today, I want to speak to you seriously about hope, about ethics, and believing in yourself in a time of political and economic turmoil. I graduated law school 25 years ago at the age of 24, and the economic times were not nearly as difficult as today's. But when I was 24 and sitting where you're sitting, I remember constantly, like every 45 seconds, experiencing a wave of anxiety with a little voice determined to know, will it work out? What if I don't get the job that I want? What if I am not very good? The only real time that I was able to step back and say, it will be all right, was when I saw on the television or saw somebody I knew go through some kind of a tragic event. Then, for a little while, a different reassuring voice would say, life is short, enjoy more, relax, it will all work out. But inevitably, the anxious voice would return. It's 25 years later. I've had some great victories and wonderful opportunities. And frankly, I've had a few spectacular legislative failures. When something doesn't go well, I experience any and all the range of disappointment or anger, but I know things will in fact be okay as long as I stay positive, stay focused, and most importantly, that I don't compromise my own sense of ethics. For whether it's a lost job opportunity or a lost piece of legislation, one door closes, and usually more than one door opens if you are true to yourself. I've thought a lot about ethics and being true to yourself over the past several months. As Dean Johnson said, I live and work in the political world and became the Senate leader last December in the midst of the worst economic crisis in California since the Great Depression. We are dealing with a $60 billion budget deficit within a $100 billion budget. It's clear, you can't pick your time to be the leader. But we are dealing with this challenge and we will continue to do so. These are very difficult times, full of great stress, short tempers, political careers on the line, and a lot of unhappy people. It's enough to test the ethical metal of people. And I don't mean ethics in the narrow sense of the word. 
As lawyers, you will be bound by a written code of ethics, which contain important rules about where the line must be drawn in your relationships to clients, courts, the law, and the public. But the real question which thoughtful lawyers and thoughtful people confront is, how close should you ever get to the line? More broadly, will you define ethics for yourself in your career and in your lives in a manner that allows you to say to your own little voice, go easy, I'm doing the right thing. A great 12th century Jewish scholar, Maimonides wrote a brilliant timeless piece on charity and how not all charity is equal. This thoughtful package could easily apply to ethics as well. Maimonides said, the lowest form of charity is giving, but giving grudgingly because society expects you to do so. That may be okay, but it is not enough. Likewise, it is important to follow the state bar ethics code, but it too is not enough. One step up the charity ladder is to give cheerfully, but to give the minimum. You can feel good, but you feel no sacrifice. It's important to follow the state bar's ethics rules willingly, cheerfully, but it too is not enough. The highest level of charity, Maimonides said, is giving anonymously and not knowing exactly who you're giving will benefit. You get no credit. You get no credit. But you go forward knowing you did the right thing and you wonder, will anyone ever know? This is in fact the ethical challenge to confront in your lives and in your careers. Will you lead when it appears that it may interfere with your career path? Will you speak out when you know by definition that you will make somebody, maybe a lot of people, mad? Will you sometimes put others, others outside of your loved ones before yourself? I have two colleagues in the legislature who could not be further from me in ideology, in political philosophy, or worldview. Yet they care about the state and its future, David Cogdell and Mike Velines. Both of these men are good examples of the definition of ethics that I have outlined for you today. And I want to take a moment to briefly share, share their stories with you. I'm the Democratic leader of the Senate, and I work closely with the Democratic leader of the Assembly, the Speaker of the Assembly, and the two Republican leaders of both houses, and of course, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. They call it, sometimes derisively, the Big Five. Dave Cogdill and Mike Velines were the two Republican leaders when I took over as President of the Senate in 2008. From the very beginning, it was clear to all of us that to balance California's budget deficit in February, it would require both deep cuts and some form of increased taxes. It would be difficult. 
if not impossible, to cut $42 billion from California's budget, cuts only, and not hurt public education, higher education, transportation, and public safety. Even Mr. Valines and Mr. Cogdill realized this despite the fact that their political party they proudly belong to has a very strict orthodoxy against any form of tax increases. In the past, and now currently, some of their usual allies, in addition to the wide array of radio talk show hosts and bloggers and Twitterers and emailers and all the rest of the new media, they're currently launching recall campaigns against other Republicans that consider raising taxes. That is the situation these two leaders faced a few months ago. Both Mike Valines and Dave Cogdill understood and understood clearly the consequences for themselves as they pursued the budget agreement with the governor, with the speaker, and with me. But the stakes for our state were too high to fail, to do nothing, and to allow the state to go off a cliff. No budget would have meant a complete slowdown, if not shutdown, of economic activity. Thousands of jobs would have disappeared. Anyone here who filed a tax return and expected a refund wouldn't have received it. Schools would have been shut down. Higher education would have experienced dramatic, dramatic consequences. California was, in fact, on the brink of total fiscal collapse. And already in the midst of economic conditions unseen since the Great Depression, it wasn't time for orthodoxies and manifestos on either side. My Democratic colleagues and I voted for deep cuts. Didn't like it, we did it. Both Mr. Valines and Mr. Cogdill ended up voting for taxes. They defied their party orthodoxy for the good of the state because they thought it was the right thing to do. Both of these men, and I am proud to call them both friends, made courageous decisions, fully knowing that the decisions they made could end their political careers. And what happened? They were both voted out, voted out as leaders of their respective caucuses. But I don't end their story there because it's not a sad story. Because I know for a fact that it's not over for them. They have earned great respect from many they continue to serve. They have loving families and will continue to make real contributions in or out of politics. I also think of retired Army four-star general Aaron Eric Shineski. Here was a man who served his country with honor for nearly four decades. He served in Vietnam, where he stepped on a landmine and blew off part of his foot. General Shineski stayed in the Army where he rose to become the Army Chief of Staff. He was on, in that position on September 11, 2001, when Al-Qaeda attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. During the run-up to the war in Iraq, General Shinseki 
publicly and privately clashed with the Secretary of Defense and the rest of the Bush administration over how many troops the U.S. would need to keep in Iraq for the post-war occupation of that country. Before the war, the general testified to Congress that something in the order of several hundred thousand soldiers would probably be required for post-war Iraq. His estimate was far higher than the figure being proposed in the invasion by Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. It's now become clear at that time that at least some of our federal government was skewing evidence to make a case for war. But General Shinseki refused to alter his recommendation to suit that administration's desire for war in Iraq. As a result, his influence on the Joint Chiefs of Staff reportedly waned. He went from a star to someone who was shut out. He was eventually forced out of his high position and resigned in 2003. But if you do the right thing, if you be true to yourself, one door may close, but another door will inevitably open. And of course we now know, and Army officials have admitted, that General Shinseki was in fact right. The occupation of Iraq, right or wrong, whether you supported it or not, required a much larger military presence then than, than that, what, that was predicted by the administration. The general was courageous to make the recommendation he did, even though he knew it would not please his civilian superiors, and in fact knew that he might lose his job. But he did it. So then what happened in 2008? The general's career was not over. He became one of President Obama's first cabinet appointments. He was picked to head the Department of Veterans Affairs, overseeing the welfare of thousands of veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. Sometimes members of the graduating class of 2009, those second, third, or fourth doors creak and open slowly. But they do open. There are, in fact, as Professor Dobris said a few moments ago, better days ahead for you, for California, and for this country. And you are entering an honorable profession. I wear the title of lawyer and politician proudly because you're about standing up for the rights of people. And you should never, despite all the jokes and all the teasing, never, ever be ashamed or embarrassed by the fact that you now proudly hold that title. Because I know that as lawyers, no matter what you do, you will have unbelievable opportunities to not only make a good living, because the economy will in fact improve, but to influence the lives of people in profound ways. 25 years speeds by. I wish for all of you over the next 25 years, thrills, spills, because without a few spills, it's not worth it, and real meaning in everything you do. As Nabil Bisharat said a few moments ago, 
Yes, you can. And yes, you will. So I want to leave you with a quote from a great American philosopher from the East Coast by the name of Yogi Berra. This sums it up for me, and I hope it does for you. Always, always go to other people's funerals. Because if you don't, they may not come to yours. Thank you very much.